Hello, and welcome to Invent Health, a podcast from technology and product development company, TTP. I'm your host, Matt Parker. Over the course of this season, we're gonna be exploring the fascinating future of health technologies. Today, we ask, what will improvements to continuous monitoring devices enable for the diagnosis and treatment of neurological disorders? Neurological disorders have a really significant patient burden, with some estimates suggesting they impact as many as 1 billion people across the globe. But simultaneously, these are diseases which are both challenging to treat and still remain relatively poorly understood. Snapshots of the brain have been available through imaging technologies for a while, but coming up with devices that are able to monitor the brain in real time has proved a huge challenge. So what would it enable? if we could see and understand what is happening in the brain when neurological abnormalities occur. Well, it would drastically change the lives of people suffering with these diseases. And the data from constant monitoring would allow us to discover more about when and why they occur. One neurological disease which has seen some really exciting work in relation to this in recent years is epilepsy. Epilepsy is a spectrum of neurological disorders that often manifests itself in seizures, events that are caused by abnormal electrical activity in the brain. The unpredictability of seizures for epilepsy patients is what makes them so challenging to manage. So what if we're able to not only predict the onset of a seizure, but stop it in its tracks before it occurs? I wanted to find out some more about the treatments and monitoring devices which currently exist in this space, as well as the ones coming around the corner. So I needed to get in touch with some of the people working at the forefront of the field. First up, I sat down with my friend and colleague, Alex Stoko. Alex is a neurotechnology consultant at TTP, the master's degree in integrated electrical and mechanical engineering from the University of Bath. Over his time here, Alex has worked on and led the product development of several medical devices and specializes in next-generation neuromodulation systems across biosensing, digital health, and neurotechnology markets. I started off by asking Alex about the notion of continuous monitoring for neurological disorders because this is the thing which would enable truly exciting treatments in the future. So hi, Alex. Uh, yeah, welcome to Invent Health uh, Series 2. Yeah, for sure. It's good to be on the show. I guess I'll kick off with sort of where we're going to be, where we're going to be going in this episode. So what do we mean by continuous monitoring for uh, neurological disorders? <laughs> it's, a big, it's a big field. So I guess what we mean by continuous monitoring is uh, moving away from this very clinician in the loop style approach to neurological disorders. So a lot of the current standard of care is around like cognitive assessment tests. And these are happening like really infrequently and it involves like, you know, traveling to your, your GP, booking appointments at neurologist clinics and really doesn't give doctors very good and very clear data to, you know, titrate pharmacological treatments or other sorts of interventions. And so moving to this like continuous monitoring, we're talking the whole kind of stack of technologies from like wearables and like medical devices all the way through to like digital health appointments and that whole kind of ecosystem around tracking patient data securely and, and effectively to enable like real-time healthcare decisions to be made and, you know, improving the lives of patients. Fantastic. And maybe sort of backing up a little bit, what about the, the sort of current standard of care has, has been so difficult? 
Yeah, so I guess neurological disorders are infamously hard to treat. A lot of them are quite difficult to diagnose. A lot of them are quite, they, they change a lot between different patients. So it's hard to, hard to kind of have a standardized test to do it. It's, there's loads of drugs and loads of very specific tests for things like infectious diseases. Everyone obviously really familiar with like things like PCR diagnostics now, but that's, that kind of doesn't exist for things like Alzheimer's or epilepsy, where it really changes like patient to patient. And part of that's just the complexity of the human brain. It's like 90 billion neurons and we're so much we don't understand. And, and some of these disorders present physiologically in different ways and in ways that we, you know, it's hard to tell from the, from the symptoms exactly what's going on, exactly how to treat it. And because of this, it's never really seen the drug pipeline that other slightly easier or more, more obvious medical treatments have seen. So what are some of the current methods we're using for, for monitoring these diseases? You sort of said uh, there's a bit of physician monitoring. What kind of things would be uh, maybe in the past and current standard of care? Yeah, so... A lot of these neurological disorders rely on things like cognitive assessment batteries where it's almost like the, if anyone did like an IQ test at school, you're giving patients these like either verbal or written or visual or motor skills tasks and you're a a physician or a, a neurologist is there monitoring for instance, for Parkinson's, it's how there's a thing called a peg test where you, you're taking a block from, from one slot to another slot and you're seeing sort of how dexterous um, you are with that. So it's about your motor function. For Alzheimer's and dementia and things, you've got more more to do with like visual spatial impairment and memory. It's a lot of these kind of patient-reported or highly interactive uh, assessments with, with clinicians rather than kind of discrete sensor data however that's kind of changing there's obviously obviously like things like ct scans and mris mm-hmm. are used to image the brain and that's that can be a really powerful tool to to help diagnose especially later stage and then there's tools called eeg so electroencephalography so that's where you put electrodes around the surface of the head and you look for kind of electrical activity so brain waves as it as it were but all all of this kind of looks for kind of gross activity and you don't really get into the specifics of how the different sort of neuronal circuits work. That's uh, super interesting. Could you tell me a little bit more about those technologies? Would you say they've been the sort of major breakthroughs in this in the field historically? Yeah, I mean actually everything we know today as a neurological disorder was basically discovered due to maybe besides some really really obvious traits basically due to advances in this kind of brain imaging nervous system monitoring technologies so in things like epilepsy the tools to look at these kind of seizure propagation centers for enabling sometimes quite drastic treatment where you need to be very precise about kind of what kind of surgical intervention you make there's been some real advantage uh, advances there in using something called OPMEG which is essentially a taking some of the magnetic physics of of MRI in a certain extent but you're what you're instead looking for is electrical activity in the brain using these um, new sensors which are optically pumped magnetometers which can be very 
look for very precise electrical monitoring. Wow. And so instead of a patient needing to be in an MRI scanner to look for this kind of activity, instead they can be in a kind of more comfortable chair and they can, you know, it's a, it's a sort of improvement in patient care while still having that specificity about, you know, if in epilepsy where, where a seizure might be starting in, in other uh, neurological disorders, other kind of mapping functionality. The kind of incredibly sophisticated brain imaging that Alex mentioned there shows how far we've come in terms of understanding and diagnosing neurodiseases. To have that kind of detail has allowed clinicians to create snapshots of what's actually happening in the brain. But to get that information continuously in real time when a seizure or similar event occurs, therein lies the issue. Because to effectively treat more aggressive forms of neurodiseases like epilepsy needs a flow of information that is constantly being tracked and responded to, and there are now devices which could hold the answer. Before getting into the tech that could potentially fill that gap, I wanted to find out some more about epilepsy itself. What do we know about the disease and what are we still waiting to learn? Hi Marty, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Matt, for the opportunity. Next, I spoke with Professor Martha Morell, someone who spent their entire career working at the absolute forefront of this field. A clinical professor of neurology at Stanford University since July 2004, Martha has served on various positions across the university, and she's since authored or co-authored more than 150 publications over that time. Martha is also the chief medical officer at Neuropace, a company that has developed a responsive neurostimulator for the treatment of medically uncontrolled partial seizures. And it was this work specifically that I really wanted to get into with her, because it's been really groundbreaking. But first, I asked her to give us some of her thoughts on where we were at with the treatment of neurodiseases before honing in on epilepsy specifically. We're talking about a very wide range of conditions here, but in terms of the burden to the patient that these types of disorders and these types of diseases present, they can be very significant, can't they? I wonder sort of how, how does that burden vary across the globe? Well, I would say that many neurological diseases are, I would use the word um, intimate, very personal, because they are affecting the brain, uh, obviously. Mm. And the brain is where we think, where we feel. It's what teaches us how to interact with others. And most neurological disorders are not because of someone's behavior or because of someone's health habits. Most occur despite what an individual does or how they live their life. They are very impactful, again, because they involve the side of, of whom, who we are. Mm. And very often, um, because they are chronic, most are chronic, must not only be dealt with by the individual, but by those who love that individual. So that would include family members and close friends. Because it is affecting the mind, mm. very often it limits, they limit the opportunity to, to be educated, to have a occupation and to really experience the normal events of life. And so I would say, depending on when the disorder occurs, it can very much impact life opportunities. And they will be conditions that uh, people would be living with potentially through their entire lives. Very often that is the case. 
I think that links us quite nicely into maybe sort of expanding into into epilepsy more specifically. And I wonder if um, maybe we could uh, kick off by talking about what we currently understand about epilepsy. Is this sort of one homogenous uh, disease or is this something which there's a, there's a spectrum of conditions and how they present? There is most definitely a spectrum. And to put this in some context that surprises most people is epilepsy is the third most common neurological disorder that neurologists see after headache and back pain. It is highly prevalent. One out of 10 people will have a seizure, which is an event that occurs because of abnormal electrical activity in the brain. Hmm. One out of 10 will have a seizure in their lifetime. Epilepsy, however, is a condition in which seizures recur and there is not a clear reason. So for example, if I were to have a seizure because I struck my head, I would not necessarily go on to continue to have seizures. But if that head trauma led to a condition in which I was susceptible to recurrent seizures, then I would have epilepsy. Most seizures occur over less than three minutes. And Many people have very infrequent seizures. And so we may know somebody who has seizures, but we've never seen them have a seizure. Mm. And they may not share it because of the substantial stigma that is associated with epilepsy in many cases. And I'm amazed despite that prevalence that I think probably people's assumptions and misconceptions around epilepsy are are probably quite incorrect. So I'd, I'd love to know, yeah, what are some of people's misconceptions around epilepsy and epilepsy sufferers? Yes. um, Throughout history, epilepsy has uh, been described since the time of the Babylonians. Mm. And throughout history, it has often been assumed to be a religious affliction. Mm. But it is not unusual for people to think it's infectious. And that may be part of the stigma that individuals are concerned that they might catch epilepsy from someone. The other is that it is can be very frightening to see someone have a seizure, Mm. to be talking to an individual and then all of a sudden to have that person uh, not be aware of what's going on or in extreme cases to have a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, which is also known as grand mal seizures or as convulsions. But the presentation of seizures, what people experience may be as subtle as a sensation or an odor. And if that were to happen to me, you might not notice that anything was going on. I might be able to be fully aware and to talk and to continue my activities. That may be one end of the seizure spectrum with the convulsion being the other end. You described epilepsy as a abnormal electrical activity in the brain. We described a couple of, I guess, different types of seizure there. Is Do we sort of fully understand what's actually happening in the brain to cause these different types of seizures? Or is that something that's still not well understood? We understand to a large extent, what is happening. We don't necessarily know why, Mm. and especially why at that moment. The brain communicates electrically. So the neurons are connected in this exquisite network. And electrical signals from one neuron will impact other neurons to which it is connected. And think of the most complex wiring diagram that you can imagine. Yes. And if the abnormal electrical discharge that starts in one neuron or a small group of neurons spreads to other neurons, then that 
can cause the symptom of the seizures. And the more neurons that are involved in the abnormal electrical activity, the more pronounced the symptoms will be or the degree to which the patient perceives or is impacted by the seizure. The misconceptions around epilepsy are pretty stark. When most people think of the disease, they go straight to strobe lights and seizures. But this ignores the nuance of the disease and its varying scales of severity. It's this nuance which goes some way to explaining why clinicians have found it so hard to find an effective treatment for some patients with more aggressive forms of epilepsy. The brain's wiring diagram, as Marty points out, is as exquisite as it is complex. And this brings its own huge challenges. So how are clinicians dealing with these challenges at the moment? I went back to Alex to find out and started off by asking about the efficacy of the drugs that many people with epilepsy rely on. Yeah, so about two-thirds of patients will respond reasonably well to anti-epileptic drugs, uh, anti-seizure medication. You know, we're not, we're not saying drugs are bad. Seizure control is super important. And, you know, for 66% of the population, they will work. However, they're not without their side effects. Mm. A drug might work for some patients for a year and then the efficacy will fade and then they'll go on to a, a new drug. And there's a element of patients or, or the patient, the parents of patients having to track their kind of epileptic seizure activity to see if what the efficacy of the drugs is. And if you've got, you know, seizure activity in the evenings or uh, when, when you, you might be asleep or there might be absence seizures or other seizures which come with memory loss, having to keep a physical book, a physical log of, of that activity can be really challenging and a real big burden on on patients or the carers. So if you had, I guess, better monitoring technologies, what would that unlock for patients? So essentially you've got, um, it would unlock this ability to, for, for patients on anti-epileptic medication, it gives them the doctor's ability to automatically see a, a whole history of how their disease is progressing, you might be able to tie, find triggers. So another common misconception with epilepsy is that people get seizures only when they see like strobe lights. That's only one particular subset of the population and a whole range of other kind of external factors can be triggers for epileptic seizures. So it could be like if you haven't eaten for five hours or combined with if, the de- if it's hot weather that day combined with something else. And so actually having a, a accurate log, like timestamped of, of how your your brain's doing, can be really powerful in terms of identifying not just whether the drugs you're working are using, but also this kind of whole holistic, you know, li- lifestyle choices that can, you know, really complement uh, any other treatments you might be on. And how would that help with sort of matching people to the right treatment? Would there be a benefit there? Yeah. So what People are seeing at the moment with the uh, some of the devices which have leading the way now purely for epilepsy monitoring. What they're seeing is it allow allowing the neurologists to really make sure people are on the right drugs, and it allows them to maybe suggest them to go down a neuro, neuromodulation or a surgical route of treatment. It allows them to look for those lifestyle choices, and it sort of takes the burden off parents and, and patients to constantly having to be uh, you know, monitoring themselves. So we're seeing at the moment, as these devices becoming more prevalent, real world clinicians are, are making you know, choices that will unlock 
new pathways, we'll unlock new modifications to to a patient's care that will, will help, well, hopefully help them. Fantastic. Yeah, that's it's super interesting to hear. It's kind of the, the range of treatments that are available and maybe how some of the new technology might help guide people through that process and perhaps either find a treatment that works for them faster or actually more quickly progress onto something that will work. Yeah. So maybe talking a little bit more about the technology then. So there's um, the traditional way of monitoring for epilepsy. If you're looking specifically for in a, in a very detailed sense, is, is your EEG going from sort of outside of the heads and then deeper in, you've got to think your EEG, so these are the electrodes around the scalp. And sometimes that might also involve shaving a patient's head to get good electrical contact all the way around. Also, uh, there's that OPMEG that we talked about earlier that's still really in the kind of research phase that hasn't reached that hasn't reached the the mass market yet. So you've got those those two which kind of sit external to the patient's head. Uh, but for severe cases, you're actually are looking to get closer to the brain activity itself mm. uh, in a way that you can't you just can't do through the skull and the skin. And therefore, there's in in specialist hospital or specialist centres, there's these things called epilepsy monitoring wards, where a patient usually has a craniectomy, which means a surgical procedure to take out a part of the skull to allow equipment to sort of interface directly to the brain tissue itself. And this happens in one of two ways: a thing called ECOG, which is uh, cortical and cephalography. So looking at the surface of the cortex or the surface of the brain mm. with an electrode array sort of placed on, on the surface itself. Or there's a thing called stereoencephalography or SEEG, where you have depth electrodes that actually go all the way into the brain tissue. You might have up to 12 of these mm. placed in different parts of the brain, which is obviously really traumatic for patients, especially pediatric ones. And how long would you have to be wearing these? Like, is this something that's permanently installed or is this for a period of diagnosis? So, so this is for the period of diagnosis. This is for usually for, for two weeks would be a, a standard stay. Unfortunately, though, because of the stochastic nature, you know, people might not have a seizure in, in that two weeks. And then all of that, they might just have to go home and they can't have any surgical interventions. So, but basically what we're seeing is um, this kind of reducing the, the impact on patients by making things smaller, making them wireless, mm. um, allows to take some of that really good data and monitoring equipment that they might have on an epilepsy monitoring ward, however traumatic that would be, and actually be able to use some of those techniques and some of that some of that data analysis, be able to pair that with a wireless communication technology so they don't they can the surgeon can close up the skin, you don't have that infection risk and a patient can go about their daily lives. And so you're seeing companies like like Neuropace with their RNS system where you've got the, the monitoring combined with the, the stimulation to disrupt the seizures and it gives giving neurologists a, a log of the electrical activity in the brain so they can see when, when seizure-like activity is happening. Those epilepsy monitoring wards, for all the incredible detail I'm sure they will give, will clearly have a big impact on patients' lives. Marty told me that due to the trial and error nature of epilepsy medication, the time from initial diagnosis through to getting into one of these specialist facilities can take years. And what's more, an extended period staying in hospital is unlikely to be a cost-effective way to monitor patients at scale. But the innovations Alex mentioned here could be the key, because there are technologies that would allow us to monitor continuously 
in patients' own homes with no disruption to the patients' lives. And they would go even one step further, not just detecting the onset of seizures, but preventing them at the source. This is the device developed by Neuropace, and Martha was key in creating it. I went back to her to find out some more about it. Perhaps you can tell me more about the device that you've created with Neuropace and how that works. Well, this came actually, uh, I'll provide a little of my personal story. I am a neurologist who has specialized my entire career in epilepsy and taken care of many thousands of patients and felt so frustrated and mm. saddened by the numbers of patients I was not able to help. Of course, as an epileptologist, people often send me the patients um, who have not been easy to treat. Mm. Still, it is very difficult, really heartbreaking to tell someone that there's nothing that you can do. So these would be individuals who haven't responded to medication and for whom we could not safely or effectively remove the seizure focus. So I became very motivated to think about something entirely different. And given the observations I just mentioned, that it's usually only a very small area of the brain mm. and only a very small percentage of time that there is a problem to take some of the concepts of cardiac defibrillators and apply them to the brain. So the development began 20 years ago of the engineering of a device that could do this. And once that technology was developed, clinical trials began actually back in 2004 and went on for many, many years. The device was created in order to provide uh, electrodes to that focus that would sense the electrical activity going on all the time and would be programmed or instructed by the neurologist to respond to abnormal electrical activity, and to provide brief pulses of stimulation, also determined by the neurologist. In addition, this device uh, was created so that it would collect information, and that is to keep a record of every time there was abnormal activity, every time the device had provided stimulation, and what had happened because of that, and also to record actual brain electrical activity similar to the EEGs that we've relied on since the 40s, but this time to look at EEGs recorded directly from the brain, mm. which we have not seen before in somebody walking around, living their usual life, waking and sleeping over years. Mm. And so this is what we would refer to as exquisite temporal sampling, meaning that we are being provided data, not at a snapshot or at best a few days, but over, over time and have learned from that, that this is an extremely dynamic disorder. I mean, the possibilities seem endless there, but what, what does this continuous monitoring, I guess, enable us to learn about the condition? So seizures are not equally likely to occur at any one moment in time, but there are clearly cycles. And those cycles very often are related to wakefulness and sleep. So some people show increases in abnormal electrical activity and therefore more susceptibility to seizures at certain points during their sleeping cycle. And others during their waking cycle, we can see that there are certain behaviors 
like alcohol uh, that that increase susceptibility or stress mm-hmm. or activity that make people more susceptible. And by learning these patterns, we can actually have a conversation, the individual who is being treated and the physician about perhaps altering those behaviors, or at least understanding times when there may be a greater risk for having a seizure. In terms of yeah, individualizing that treatment for a specific patient, you you get a much better understanding of how the condition manifests for them and how you can potentially tailor aspects of the other aspects of the treatment to that specific patient as well? Absolutely. When we began getting this information, we had no idea what we would see. We did not know whether everybody would be the same or everybody would be different. Mm. And what we found is there is difference from individual to individual, but within an individual, what we see is quite consistent. And that was very good for using this treatment because that means that it is fairly straightforward and does not take much more than a few weeks to understand what should be detected, to understand what the abnormal electrical electrical activity is in that individual that predicts that a seizure is likely to occur. So programming or dialing in what should be detected can be done early and that will remain consistent. But then what we also want to see is the effect of the stimulation. We have an opportunity to change the way stimulation is developed, either how much stimulation or the nature of the stimulation, whether it's very short bursts or longer bursts, whether it's low frequency or high frequency. But by being able to see actually what the effect of the stimulation is, then we can make more rapid adjustments to find what is right for that individual and to create a very personalized approach, which has before not been possible because we haven't really understood enough about exactly what is happening in that individual's brain. Individualization and personalization are some of modern healthcare's biggest priorities across the board. And the kind of progress in treating epilepsy that they could offer if done right could be really groundbreaking. Neuropace, having the only FDA-approved device in this space, really are leading the way. But would having their devices put out at scale be a kind of panacea for epilepsy? Are there other developments going on in tandem which could help patients even further? I want to end this episode by seeing what an idealized future for epilepsy might look like. Here's Alex with his thoughts. I guess the holy grail of any treatment is to let patients live their lives as if they were condition-free, right? So stopping any seizure before it happens would be the, the holy grail. And to do that, you might want some really rapid, dynamic response to seizure starting. There's some literature to show that if you time your uh, neuromodulation exactly right, you can help stop the seizure before it really takes hold. And so if you can kind of nip that in the bud and scramble the signal, as it were, you could maybe stop that that seizure happening at all. Having a sort of device that would monitor and then intervene in time to stop that seizure progression starting, that would be kind of the holy grail and, and let patients live seizure-free. I wonder if we were to look a bit more broadly, sort of beyond epilepsy here, how the kind of 
innovations that we see here, how do they apply to other conditions? I think there is there is so much work going into all kinds of neurological disorders, everything from psychedelic therapies to uh, new cell and gene therapies. Really recently, we started doing similar things in Parkinson's. So looking at local field potentials in the brain to titrate the Parkinson's uh, stimulation for for Parkinson's to help that therapy adapt in in real time to to the patient's needs. We're looking at using neuromodulation for depression. There's a huge amount of research going into being able to apply some of these these neuromodulation techniques for Alzheimer's, and hopefully we'll see some of those uh, progress into later stage clinical trials. The more we understand these complex neurological diseases through increased monitoring, the more clinicians will be able to collaborate and create treatments which work across the board. Martha agrees and even sees a world where people with epilepsy could live their lives completely free of seizures. What I imagine my future would be an intervention to inhibit or prevent epileptogenesis. And then it would be medications that actually are targeted to only those neurons that are firing abnormally. Mm. And then I would look towards not having to remove or destroy a part of the brain, but to manage it and to help it heal by inhibiting the abnormal pathways and promoting healthy pathways. And how far do you think we are away from, from that future? I would say, oh my gosh, it... It could be a very long time because the time it's taken to develop the responsive neurostimulator was a long time. Mm. It was a meaningful part of my life. But in the meantime, with advances in technology, and that includes uh, miniaturization, advances in integrated circuits, advances in, in power, uh, in batteries, And then with the application of AI, I think it's kind of like what we saw with computer chips. And perhaps the development in this area in medical therapies will not be exponential because, of course, we have to ensure these are safe. And that does take some time. But it could and I think will accelerate. Uh, I think that's that's brilliant. Um... Yeah, thank you very much, Marty. Yeah, I feel very privileged to have been part of this. And mostly, I feel very privileged to have been able to share uh, my patient's journey. And I must say that it's really gratifying to see that there is a great deal of effort across the board to continue to innovate and to develop not only these devices and new surgical approaches, but also medications. So uh, for those who are struggling with epilepsy, there is no reason to lose hope. I've been most impressed this week by the way in which Neuropace's RNS system has already forged a path for effective treatment. It's that ability to not only monitor, but to respond directly to seizures, which holds the most promise. Because that would radically alter the lives of patients with severe epilepsy, and even other diseases besides. Interacting with the brain at this fundamental level is the core of tackling neurological diseases. And with these innovations, there should be every hope that the future is one where seizures become a thing of the past. 
Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Invent Health from TTP. And a big thanks to both Marty and Alex for their incredible insights. You can find out more about both their work in the show notes. We'll be back next time with an episode looking at how engineers and programmers are designing for trust in healthcare systems, focusing on the potential of AI especially. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to let us know, please do get in touch on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find us at TTP. And don't forget to subscribe and review Invent Health on your favorite podcast app, as it really helps others find our show. We'll see you next time.